Lord, we come to you by your mercy and calling on your mercy. And we do this with confidence, accepting the trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. While we were your enemy, you loved us. So our love for you is a response, returning to you the love you show us. Your faithfulness, your unmeasurable faithfulness is revealed when we stray from you, when we find unfaithfulness in our hearts. Holy Spirit, you give us eyes that see the sin and you enable us to return to yourself. In our weakness, by your strength, we seek to practice faithfulness. This faithfulness is not our own, but is your faithfulness, that we seek to return to you in response to your great faithfulness. So our calling is clear, to love you with faithfulness and to love others the way you have loved us. Help us to forgive others the way you have forgiven us. And Lord, we are thankful for the freedom given us in this country to publicly bear your name. We can take your name and practice allegiance to you. Keep us from using this freedom as an excuse to be lax in our faith or lukewarm in our commitment to you. We pray for our sisters and brothers around the world who face persecution for their commitment to you. Protect them from the evil one, add to their number, and help them bring up generations of faithful Christ followers. We are thankful for the freedom we have to call out and speak against this country when it is not following your ways. As your children, we are allegiant to you first. It is no longer we who live, but Christ. So keep us from being deceived by vague references to a deity or lip service to your word without wholehearted application of its truth. Keep us from being deceived by the promises of the God of this country. Its promises of fulfillment and sexuality and consumerism are empty. Set our hearts on the highest standard of commitment to your kingdom. In your kingdom, the last is first and the first is last. The distinctive of your kingdom is self-sacrificial enemy love. And to be called your children, this must be the distinctive mark of our lives. So we pray for those who are seeking to protect law and order, not only in this country, but around the world. We do not pray for victory by force, but instead that the weak and marginalized would be protected, which is your will, and that anyone of any nation who seeks to exploit the weak for their own profit would be put to shame and brought to justice. Let this start in our own lives as we do not speak with hate about our enemies, but instead speak with love, calling them to your ways, just as you called us in your love and faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. And if you have your Bibles handy, you can open up to Mark 12, 28. Mark 12, 28. Well, thank you to any of you who are joining in from home. I know that's weird. We haven't done this before, but uh, we have live stream going. And so if any of you are joining us at home, we're glad to have you by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we're thankful for technology that you can join us. Uh, we miss you guys, but we uh, love you and we're praying for you. To those of you that are here in person, uh, it is again good to see half of your faces. Um, and again, I will take that. I will take half your faces uh, over none of your faces for sure. Um, 
Thank you for helping to make this a place in which everyone who comes can feel safe. And as you guys can see, um, you know, it's pretty simple. We got the masks going, we got the, you know, prepackaged communion going, and we got the social distancing going. But other than that, it's pretty normal. So um, I'm super excited to have you all here, and thank you guys for your uh, flexibility in the midst of all of this. Well, we're going to be in Mark 12, 28 this morning. And... Uh, you don't have to look long in the world to realize that life has gotten increasingly more complex over the last four months, has it not? What used to be a normal routine has now been disturbed by constant analyzing anxiety and stress. And when we look at national and local unrest and changing information all the time, opposing opinions, all have combined to create this stew of confusion. Do any of you feel like you're in that stew of confusion? Raise your hands. Anybody? I joked last sermon and uh, last service, and I joked with Kelly uh, last week that you guys are going to have to pretend you're at like a beat poetry reading or something, or like, you know, raise your hands. Be, for those of you that are more Pentecostal, you're already doing it for the rest of you. You know, you got to show me that you're interacting because I can't see your mouths. Last week, I was like, none of my jokes made it. And then somebody said, oh, one of them was funny. And I thought, well, it would have been good to see a smile. But that's what happens in a masked church. Well, we all are in this stew of confusion, aren't we? And this is extremely difficult for our brains to handle. I've noticed with some of my clients and counseling that our brains just kind of are shutting down. Each human being uh, is really only given so much resilience and so much self-control and so much ability to take in traumatizing events. And some have more than others, but all of us are being stretched. Can I get an amen? Yeah? And when that happens, our brains and bodies are designed by our wise creator to start to make things more efficient, to kind of shut down and try to simplify, to only process and work with what is necessity to survive. And so when confronted with confusion, I think we often need simplicity, don't we? We, we need simplicity to help us understand what we as Christians can do in a dark world and how we can proclaim the light of Christ. And that's why I'm so thankful for the section we've been in, in chapter 11 and chapter 12 as we've been moving through this, because Jesus makes it simple. He gives us the simplicity and direction that we need that is so applicable and that will help us to proclaim Jesus in this chaos we're talking about. And he makes it simple today because he gives us the core of his commands, the greatest commands. The last two weeks we've watched, haven't we, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come to Jesus to trap him in his words and hopefully make him lose his following. For them, it's a political game and they were performing political homicide towards Jesus. But Jesus met each one with a wisdom that is largely above politics and above petty personal opinions. In his answers, Jesus has been the incarnation of what we see in James chapter 3, verse 17, that says this, Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In being the incarnate form of this, Jesus has made those around him marvel. Now, can you imagine if we started every political debate every Twitter feed, every Facebook post, every Instagram post with that. Like, it was a rule that before you posted something or said something, you had to read that. How would that change our public debate? Wouldn't it be amazing? Well, the text before us this week is no different. Jesus is, again, challenged. They attempt to trap him. 
And Jesus will be questioned here by one of the scribes, the group of the Sanhedrin that was supposedly most knowledgeable about the law of God. These were the guys you wanted on your team. If you had Bible trivia night, they were the guys that knew what was going on. And in this, Jesus is going to cut through all the secondary questions and opinions, and he specifies with amazing clarity what the most important command is in all of God's law. And I find this so helpful because in this world of craziness and chaos, I personally need something I can sink my teeth into, hold on to, and apply. And so today's teaching has that in abundance. Today what we're going to look at is the great command of our sovereign king. If you're taking down notes, you can write that down as the title for the sermon today. The great command of our sovereign king. Now, if you're a citizen underneath a king, it's important to know what their commands are, is it not? And if he can simplify it into one great command, shouldn't we as citizens of his kingdom take that to heart? Yes, absolutely. And so the scribes come to him in this string of conflict with the religious leaders. And let's take a look here in verse 28 of Mark 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Don't you love it? Isn't it amazing looking back on it now? He's literally talking to the creator of the universe. Ah, you're right, teacher. Throwing him a bone. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus puts it to an end here, all the questioning and the trapping, and says, I'm going to give you the answer. And his answer was so wise that it shut down everything else. And in the midst of this, what we see is the first point I want you to write down today. We see the scribe bringing what's called a rabbinic test, what I'm calling a rabbinic test. Throughout the rabbinic writings, such as uh, some of you might be familiar with the Mishnah, which was the commentary on the Talmud and the Old Testament laws, there are records of various high-profile rabbis throughout history being asked to consolidate all of God's Old Testament law into its most simplified form. Now, this is important because this still happens today, right? When someone new comes to the church, perhaps even some of you, uh, I get asked all sorts of questions, right? And they're questions that are most, most important to you. I, I kind of, here's a, a little bit of an inside trick. I kind of know what your primary issues are when you come and ask me, Pastor, do you believe in this or this or this, right? And it spans the gamut, man. Some people will ask theology. Some people will ask politics. Some people will ask what my favorite sandwich is, right? It doesn't matter. But that's kind of your rabbinic test if, I can listen to this guy or not. You know, if you come and you say, what's your favorite team? And I say the Boston Celtics and you're a Bulls fan, you're like, oh, I'm out of here. I can't stand it. And people do that all the time. And that's what was going on here is the rabbinic test. They were saying, Jesus, can we even listen to you? And Jesus uh, does this rabbinic test in a way that many other rabbis had done. They boiled down the laws. Now, why was this important? Because there are 613. Everybody say 613. 613. 
613 laws in the Old Testament. Do any of you have 613 anything memorized? Like anything, like names and faces, right? There's supposedly research that says our brains can only handle 500 names, right? I don't know if that's 100% true or not, but 613. And so going to these rabbis and boiling it down was super helpful. But this scribe comes to him, possibly not even out of conflict, but just wanting to test him. And it says that he saw that Jesus answered the others well. So he asks, which commandment is the most important? A question of priority. If I'm going to obey one law, which one should it be? And Jesus answers by consolidating the law into two main commands, 613 down to two. Is that helpful for you? It's helpful for me, right? And so you can walk out of here today going, man, if Jesus was comfortable boiling all 613 down to two, maybe I should take note of these and try and put them into place. Well, first, Jesus answers by quoting the great Shema. You guys can turn there. Uh, You might be familiar with it because we spent so much time in Deuteronomy, but turn there with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. This is the foundation of the law, the core of the law. Without what is about to be said, uh, there really is no law. And so Deuteronomy 6.1, it says this. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord, now pause for a second, Who's the Lord? Capital L-O-R-D. Who's the Lord? It's the name in Hebrew of the Tetragrammaton, okay? We would pronounce it in English, Yahweh, okay? So Yahweh, the Lord your God, commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, okay? So this is supposed to pass on by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's the intro. And he says this, hear, O Israel. Okay? You guys know this is the great Shema, because in Hebrew it's Shema, O Yisrael. Okay? The great Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Now, the Jewish people have taken this very literally, and they've got the, uh, what are called the phylacteries, the boxes that are wrapped around their arms and on their forehead. If you go to the Wailing Wall, you see men that will be uh, rocking before the Wailing Wall, praying and lament. Uh, you'll also see on the doors of, of Jewish homes that they have a, a little um, holder that holds a, a small scroll with the great Shema on it to remind them constantly that they're the people of God. Now, as we'll look at in a second, that was not the intent, was to do the literal phylacteries and the things on the door, right? Now, those are are fine, but what this is talking about is everything you do with your hands, all action, everything you do with your mind, all thought, all of you is supposed to go into worshiping Yahweh. Now, remember, many of us have errantly been taught that the Jews were somehow given the law of God by God as a way to earn his love, and in failing to obey it, they lost his love. That's an errant narrative that many of us have been given. 
That's the traditional saved by works view that the Old Testament uh, gives that's actually incorrect. Remember that it was the grace of God that drew Abraham out of idolatry to worship God. Remember that it was the grace of God to enter into the covenant in the first place with Abraham. Remember that it was the grace of God that was the, the thing that he said, hey, if the covenant is broken, it's on me there in Genesis, right? He took the onus of the relationship on himself. It was the grace of God that broke the Israelites out of enslavement in Egypt because he heard their cry. What is all this? Is this all based on works? No, it's based on, go ahead and say it loud, grace. It's based on grace. The Levitical law was then given, and the sacrificial system was then given to Israel as a response to their sinful idolatry. They took the grace of God and stepped on it. And so he gave them the sacrificial system so that they had a method by which they could repent. But it was ongoing. They had to do it all the time. And it was also given so that they could show the surrounding nations, the law was given so they could show the surrounding nations, the heart and character of Yahweh in their interactions with one another as they loved each other. And what caused them to be judged by the very law that they were given was the fact that they forsook the covenant commitment with God and used the law as a manipulative tool while also blatantly disobeying pieces of it. And this resulted in the broken covenant with God. And all the while, God was promising there's going to be something better, a better way to do this, a new covenant. And at its heart, the law could be summarized by the Ten Commandments, okay? Now, think for a second. Do you know off the top of your head the Ten Commandments? Now, if you thought about it, you probably could. Like when you go to Disneyland and you have to remember the, the dwarves, right? You guys remember those, right? And if you think about it, you're like, I think there was a sneezy, and a, right? you go along the line. That's kind of the Christian version of remembering the Ten Commandments whenever I ask somebody. I think there's one about, right? And you go through them. Well, this was the summary. And the first section of those Ten Commandments was how you would love and respect God. And the second section was how you would love and respect who? Your neighbor, others. And so this is how the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments was broken up. And this is what you'll see if you look at many of the 613 commands. Any dealing with the sacrificial system, the temple, and the religious rites, they were a form of showing love towards who? God. All the rest of them, they were a way of showing love towards who? Your neighbor. Many of the odd laws that we don't understand today or that seem funny to us today were actually ceremonial laws that separated Israel from the pagan nations and their forms of worship to set them up as a different people. And so Jesus' reference in Mark chapter 12 to the great Shema is intended to encapsulate the same idea of what it means to love God. Let's break down really quickly Deuteronomy 6 here, really quickly. This is what it means to love God. Go ahead and start taking notes here. The first thing is to love God means to listen to him and obey him. To listen to him and obey him. In this false view of, of sloppy agape grace garbage that is often put out in the church about, well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's formally called antinomianism, right? Uh, it's never law. There's never need for obedience. It's all grace, and God just doesn't care. Guys, that's false. That's not in the Bible. To love God is to listen to him and obey him, yeah. right? If my children are constantly acting in rebellion and just saying, well, Dad, I know that you love me anyway, I'll say, well, yes, I do, but I'm still calling you to obey me, Right? So there's grace, but there needs to be obedience. And to listen to God is to read his word, 
to talk with his people as we wrestle together in the word of God, and then to obey. That's what the word Shema means. The word here in the Hebrew is not just hear as in taking in noise or sound. It's to hear and then put into play. So listen and obey God's voice. Secondly, to love God is to have covenant loyalty to Yahweh and Yahweh alone above all other gods. He is, Yahweh is, the God of the Old Testament, is the triune God that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is Yahweh's incarnate form, his Messiah, his agent on the earth. The Holy Spirit is the person that binds together God and his people, his covenant people, to one another. And so we listen and obey God's voice, and we have covenant loyalty to Yahweh. Third, right here, it says that it's to devote your life to him so that he becomes the motivating factor in all of life. He becomes the provider of your life, the provider of your identity, of your value, and of your salvation. He's the provider of all these things. It's by the fact that you've been saved and purchased as his own that then becomes your identity. It becomes your value. And so all of life is motivated by him. Fourth, not only listen and obey, have covenant loyalty, devote your life, but fourth, it's to raise up disciples in his name. If we have children and we're blessed in that way, then obviously that means that they are our primary disciples brought up to exemplify and reflect his character. But overall, it doesn't matter if you're single or married or if you have children or not. Our job is to catechize, to teach, to train one another in God's ways. And this means that discussion about God is always on our lips. We're always checking in with each other. We're always encouraging one another. We're always convicting one another. And this isn't forced, but it's natural as the foundation to how we live and interact. And lastly... Fifth, devotion in a life-serving God will be reflected in how we act. And this is symbolized again by the hands, how we act, and how we bring our thoughts into captivity to obey Christ, the symbolized by the frontlets uh, between your eyes. Our thoughts, our actions will reflect our obedience to Christ. In American culture and English language, love basically means nothing more than positive affection. I can love a piece of pizza the same as I can love my wife as I can love a firework. But that's not true, is it? Which of those three, three things, uh, to which of those three things do I have covenant faithfulness and covenant commitment? Obviously, my wife. I love her deeply, not just with positive affection, because positive affection goes away, doesn't it, when you're frustrated or stressed? To love God is more than our English word will allow us. It's to enter into covenant relationship with him, based on his grace, his desire to be in relationship with us, to give him loyalty above anything else in life and to trust him even when life does not make sense, say, for the last four months. It means living in ways that bring his heart of righteousness and justice to bear. It means submitting to the one who came as God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, by accepting his sacrifice on the cross in your place and mine and in proclaiming his victory as king through the resurrection. Without that, all obedience will not come because our hearts are naturally sinful. And so we must accept him first and foremost as Lord and Savior. Dear brothers and sisters, whether you're here or listening online, let me ask you individually right now, do you love the Lord your God with your everything? Do you love the Lord your God with your everything?
with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Or have you let other things get in the way? If I'm being honest with you, the last four months, I've let a lot of other things get in the way. Fear, anxiety, you name it. Politics. Do we love the Lord our God with our everything? In the book of Revelation, there is a picture of one who is no longer living in love of God, submitted to his kingdom, but one who has been overtaken by the worldly system around them. In Revelation 13, there is a description commonly referred to as, i got to get the voice right here, the mark of the beast. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? The mark of the beast. And in Revelation 13, it's given, and, and over the years, this has been taken to extreme ends by prophecy watchers who've pointed to everything from barcodes to iPhones to cryptocurrency to online payment. But guys, the point of the author of Revelation, John the Revelator, was not some new payment system that you have to run from into the hills. It wasn't getting off the grid. What it was, was the anti-Shema. Remember, the Shema was your hands and your forehead. And so the anti-Shema is the fact that there are two kingdoms and you're either going to give your action and your thoughts and your heart and your mind and your soul over to something or over to Christ. Over to the kingdom of heaven or over to the kingdom of this world. This idea of the mark of the beast is not telling us to all go be survivalists out in the woods and stay off the grid. That's not what it's about. It was the fact that there are two kingdoms and those that become entangled with the political, economic, and religious system of this world are no longer taking part in the Shema in which the actions of their hands and the thoughts of their minds point to Yahweh and to his Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The actions of those who, quote-unquote, accept the mark of the beast are those whose actions and thoughts of their minds are pointing to the fact that they are entangled and submit to something else entirely. That's John's point. And perhaps today is the day where you step back into that loving covenant that you have been wandering away from, realizing that maybe the last four months or even the last few weeks, you've gotten pulled into so many different directions, maybe even in good things, trying to figure out the political connotations of everything going on around us. But you've gotten pulled away. And today is the day where you need to hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with your everything. Secondly, though, Jesus adds that there is a second command that is on par with the first command, and he says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This can't happen without the first, in my opinion, in truth, and we'll see why here in a moment. But this was the second section of the Ten Commandments, and within a large portion of the 613 Levitical laws, this is what you saw. These were practical ways to love your neighbor. For example, how do you love your neighbor when they owe you money? Well, there's a law for that. Kind of like there's an app for that, right? There's a law for that. How do you love your neighbor when they accidentally kill your oxen, right? That's one we use a lot. The other day, Ryan made a hole and my ox fell into it. And now he's got to replace it, right? That's how he'll show me love, right? Not really, but it's an example. How do you love your spouse when there is a doubt of their marital faithfulness? Well, there's a, there's a I almost said app for that. There's a law for that, Right? How do you have conflict in a way that will end in reconciliation within the people of God? What do you do when you hate somebody to the point so much that you just can't seem to reconcile? Well, guess what? There's laws for that. These are all laws given to help the people of Israel love one another. 
And this is where it gets sticky, doesn't it? Because we might be able to convince ourselves that we love God even if what we just listed actually isn't true in our lives. But when it comes to this command, evidence for or against the case of us loving God through our love for one another, it becomes very starkly clear, doesn't it? It's right in front of your face. It's children loving their parents or not. It's parents loving their children or not. It's siblings loving each other or not. It's very important stuff. The first thing that we have to ask Jesus is, because this is such an important question, is, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Because that's what we like to do. We like to find the loopholes. So let's find the loophole. Let's figure out who is my neighbor. Because here, Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19.18. And funny enough, I've actually heard pastors preach, the, preach this way. Well, you only have to love those who are within the people of God. Right? Because that's basically what this says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So your neighbor is in your own people. Well, we know, okay, a little bit of foreshadowing here. We know in a moment Jesus is going to go beyond that and say it's not just people uh, in the chosen people of God. But let's just stay there. Let's just pause there for a second. Even if this is what Jesus meant, that we're only supposed to love those within the people of God, uh, how do you think we're doing? How do you think Mission Fellowship is doing? How do you think the global church is doing? And to ask that question, we need scripture to define love for us. So before we say whether or not we're doing well with it, let's look at a few definitions of what love actually is. This is John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You could even possibly put in there his rights for his friends. Lay down his rights for his friends, his life for his friends, okay? Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, I don't know about those of you in this room that have strong friendships or marriages, but I could probably spend the rest of my life employing this with just my wife and children, and that would be a unbelievably large work. Amen? Because that's what love is. Here's another one from Romans 15, 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Okay, so those of us, uh, take, take, uh, just listen to me for a second before you jump the gun here. Let's say those who want to wear masks are the strong. You have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Let's say those who don't want to wear masks are the strong. You have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Fill in the blank, right? I'm not telling you my personal opinion. That's what it says. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build our neighbor up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And guys, I know this is sticky and I'm stepping into it right now. I'm literally seeing uh, the pile of dog duty and I'm stepping in it purposefully. If we can't apply these to mask wearing, whether or not we agree with the science, we're in a heap load of trouble. We really are. If that is the limitation of our love, we're in a heap load of trouble. And again, I didn't even tell you my personal opinion on masks, all right? So again, I ask you, how is the church doing in our care for one another, in our reaching out to one another, in our social media posts, in our discussion of hard topics on which there have been an abundance over the last three months? Let's take that one for an example. 
How do we have hard conversations? Well, this is the verse right above where Jesus quoted in Leviticus 19.18. This is Leviticus 19.17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, guys, basic question. Does social media add to one another reasoning with each other? Or is it just everyone screaming their opinion into the wind? It's just everyone screaming their opinion. We as Christians are to reason with one another. Have we as a church been reasoning frankly with one another on hard topics that need lots of loving, nuanced discussion? Because here's what I'm finding as I enter into these political discussions. There's not one easy answer. There's a lot of different pieces to it. For some in the church, whether it be our local church or the worldwide church, the love discussed here has shown in your lives and has not faded. And you know who you are. You've been trying to act in this as time has gone on. And if that is honestly you, whether you're at home or here, I want to tell you, well done. Because it's been hard. But for others, my heart has broken. And I've even been one of those others. There have been points in the last four months where my humanity has shown in a huge way. And my heart breaks because I watch us, we who proclaim with our lips that we know and partake of the love of Christ, and then turn and show nothing but callousness, hatred, anger, and uh, dismissal to anyone who we disagree with. And these, somehow, these actions are showing us as Christians that seem to be disregarding what God says here. And unfortunately, I think those who are shown to be the most callous and hate-filled are the ones that get the most press. You ever notice that? But Jesus said this in John 13, 34 through 35. He said, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think we've tricked ourselves into thinking that if we have a certain political opinion, then people will know us as Christians. That is false. It's your love one for another. And so this is where the curveball comes, brothers and sisters. Did Jesus mean to speak of love as only for those who are brothers and sisters within the church? You know the answer. This question is the pivot point here. Here it turns from rabbinic testing to be applied to Jesus. It turns now into a personal heart test for you and for me. And that's the second point I want to talk about today, a personal heart test. Did Jesus mean to cut off the definition of neighbor to mean only those within the church? Or only those within your political party? Is it only supposed to mean those with whom you agree and have affinity with? Well, let's listen to our Messiah and see what he actually said. This is Matthew 5:43. Matthew 5:43 through 48. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Notice that the perfection is attached to how well you love others. What distinguishes those that are truly children of God is their ability to love even those that might be classified as enemies. Let's look now, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 because Jesus gets right at this and makes it even more clear in the ver- than the version of our text today 
as, he, uh, as the, the author, Luke, provides it in Luke chapter 10. He tells us the same event, but he adds on this parable. So in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, it's basically the same thing we just read in Mark. But then he starts up in verse 29. This scribe comes to him and says, He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? See, he just did what we just did. It's human nature. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, now I'm going to adjust a couple of the words here to make it make sense in our cultural context. Now, by chance, an evangelical Christian was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Catholic, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Hans, why, why evangelical and, and, and Catholic? Well, because aren't we, the Christians, supposed to be the people that would help someone who's hurting, right? But then, this man laying on the road, well, he was a Democrat. So a Samaritan walked by, and let's replace that with a Republican. A Republican walked by as he journeyed and came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now you guys get the gist of the story, because the Samaritans and the Jews were mortal enemies, much like the two parties in our governmental system, right? He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these threes do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The scribal lawyer justified himself by doing what we do, which is to limit our love, to find loopholes. Again, Samaritans and Jews were mortal enemies. They hated each other. They make Democrats versus Republicans look like a party where everybody's singing kumbaya. And dear church, when we take these words of Jesus and apply it to ourselves, you can see how quickly we limit love within ourselves. Just ask us to sacrifice ourselves or what we would determine as a personal right for the sake of the other. And we debate logic. We don't talk about love. We see how shallow our love is. Just ask us to become humble and listen to the other and their differing opinion that we may absolutely hate. We may hate that opinion, but you'll see how shallow our love is. Just walk through a pandemic and racial tension, and you'll see how shallow our love is. Dear church, the love of many, including the church, has grown cold. But that's not a shock, as if it were some new trend in humanity. This lack of love is found in the fullness of history. Read the story of the Bible. Mankind had barely gotten off the starting blocks, and we got brothers beating each other in the head with rocks. This is mankind's heart when it is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Lack of love of God and lack of love for one another is what defines us as humanity without God's intervention. And there is perhaps no better way to sum up the kingdom of darkness and its citizens than this, lack of love for anyone but myself. So, dear saint, how are you doing when it comes to love, to peacemaking, to self-sacrifice, to reconciliation, to forgiveness, and to covenanting with one another to strive towards healthy, functional, loving relationships with one another so that we can reflect Jesus Christ to the world around us? How are we doing? Well, go back with me to Mark, and as you're pondering that question, we see a little bit of a turn in this story. 
The scribe tries to regain power and authority over Christ at the end there by telling him he had done well. And he says something very biblical and factual. He says all of the religion in the world, all the sacrifices in the world won't matter if there's not love. And this is very much the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. I can have all knowledge. I can be as prophetic as possible. But if I have not love, I have nothing. But the reality is, is that Jesus clearly shows that he is, in fact, the judge here. And look at what he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 34 there, right at the end. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's an interesting statement there. And so lastly, what Jesus is doing here, I believe, is he's giving us a kingdom citizenship test. This is the third part, a kingdom citizenship test. Such an interesting final statement. You're not far from the kingdom of God. This shows us a couple of things. First, it shows us that there is agreement between Jesus and at least a portion of the religious leaders. I think we have this tendency to look at Jesus and, and the leaders and see them as diametrically opposed. But in reality, the leaders in Jesus were both Old Testament scholars. They used the law, the writings, and the prophets as their foundation. And this is why we can never separate Christianity from the Old Testament Anyone that does so is creating a false religion. It's not true Christianity. But this tells us that the religious leaders had the right foundation. So why then did Jesus say, you are not far? Another way to put this is, you're close, but you're missing something. And this is the second thing that it shows us, that they were missing something that we need to look at seriously. And this is where we begin to see the test of whether or not we are truly people within the kingdom. Remember the simple definition of a kingdom from the past? Do you guys remember it? A kingdom is, say it with me, a king ruling a people. Say it with me, a king ruling a people. Very simple definition. And this scribe had the king directly in front of him and yet was not submitted to him, even trying to gain authority over him. Does that sound familiar? Do you and I ever try and do that? We try and gain authority over Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, I know you said that, but let me tell you my situation, because in my situation, you'd have a different opinion, right? We try and say all the time that Jesus is actually submitted to us. But Jesus is the king. Remember in Mark 1.15, where he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And subsequent to Jesus' resurrection, Notice how they phrased things about Jesus as king, because I think this is extremely important in our day. Because of bad eschatology, bad teaching on the end times, bad pneumatology, teaching of the Holy Spirit, many Christians go, yeah, yeah, his salvation, that's great. He purchased my salvation back there on the cross. Back then, I'm living my life now. And then eventually in the future, then he'll be my king, because then there will be a kingdom. And okay, so I'm good to kind of do my thing now, as long as I'm somewhat moral and God bless America and all that stuff, right? That's pretty much a lot of evangelicals. But the reality is, is Jesus is king right now. You are a citizen first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven. How do we know this? This is what Acts 2.33 says. Notice the tensing that, that uh, the author uses here. Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching. He's saying Jesus has already been exalted to the right hand of God. Notice that Acts chapter 5.31 says something similar. God exalted him. It's already done. At his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus was enthroned as king, ruling over the kingdom at the point of resurrection from the dead. I could give you multiple more scriptures on this. Romans 1, the intro to the whole letter says this. 
At resurrection, Jesus became king to those who would profess him as Savior. This scribe, like so many outside the church, and I fear as of late, many inside the church may believe that they are indeed followers of Yahweh, but they don't respect nor submit to the reign of Christ in their daily lives and actions. Yes, Jesus, I know that you tell me to love my enemies, but I really feel this need to post this social media post that says that they're not and that they're bad. What are we doing? The reality is, is that we either submit to him or we don't. We're stuck in bad teaching on the end of days, and so we're waiting for Jesus to show up, and then we'll submit to him. But dear church, he's king right now. When is Jesus king? Right now. He's king over those who actually desire to obey his rule and over those who accept and proclaim Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. And to any listening right now, whether here in person or at home, I want to ask you, is Jesus your Savior and your King? Is he the authority over your life, even when it may cause you to have to change your opinion or change the way that you live? For this scribe, Jesus was not the king, but just another teacher. But maybe you say that Jesus is your king. Maybe, maybe you said, I, I want him as my king. And if you haven't, man, email me at hansatmissionsalem.com or come talk to me after the service, and I'd love to talk to you about what it is to be a Christ follower. But maybe you're sitting here right now and you're saying, I already have Jesus as king. Well, then the next question becomes whether or not you are actually following his rule. Or are you ruling your own life? Because as we're finding in Mark, and we'll become more clear of this in chapter 13, Israel is being judged not because of their lack of knowing God's law, but their lack of obeying it so as to proclaim his heart to the nations. The Bible is so clear that we are saved by God's grace and drawn into his kingdom by his mercy. Nothing that we've done. But the Bible then clearly tells us that we who are in the kingdom of God will slowly but surely grow into the image of Christ, having his heart and not our own. The Old Testament prophesies clearly that he will take our hearts of stone and he will replace them with hearts that mimic his, and that is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. After his death and resurrection, God poured out his spirit into the hearts of his people, the citizens of the kingdom, so that we might desire to follow and obey him in all we do. And the scripture is clear that we will still make mistakes, sin will still come, but the spirit within us will always draw us back to conviction so that we might repent, seek forgiveness from God and one another, and follow God in obedience. And so then we can ask the question of if we follow God's law. Well, Hans, what does all this talk about law? We're New Testament believers. Well, let's look at the New Testament. This is James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13.8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Isn't that awesome? You guys can forget the other 612 commands. Because if you just love, you will naturally fulfill the other ones. Isn't that amazing? Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Obedience to this law is not the way in which we gain salvation. It is the evidence that we ever received salvation as a gracious gift in the first place. Dear brothers and sisters, to know the love of God is to accept love from one another. And to express the love 
towards God is to express love towards one another. They play hand in hand. For love to be whole, we must have both. Love of man without love of God is humanism. And it will ultimately end in a perverse definition of love that we adjust to suit our own opinions. But love of God without love of man is mysticism or worse, false religion, devoid of a true knowledge of God because God is one who acts in tangible, incarnate love. Who is your king and ruler this morning? What is the law that you ultimately hold above all others? In what ways do you and I, do we need to repent of our selfishness and self-concern in this time of chaos and disorder so that we might love in ways that will show the world that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven? In what ways are we showing the world that you love even those that disagree with you and that you might view as enemies? So here's your application this, this week, church. This week, I want you to sit down with the Lord in a time of silence once every day. Doesn't matter when it is. And in that time of silence, I want to challenge you to express your lament and even your anger and maybe even your hatred about someone to the Lord. Lord, I am angry at this person, whether it be a government official, whether it be you know Hans in the pulpit because I hate what he says, whether it be somebody in this church who I'm in conflict with, whether it be my wife. I want you to sit down and say, Lord, I am lamenting the pain of this brokenness and this relationship. And then I want you to ask the Lord to give you his heart towards them in love and peaceable wisdom, and I want you to pray for their good. Not just like, let them have a good day, but like, dear God, I pray that Donald Trump, dear God, I pray that Governor Brown would be blessed this week. That two people on completely opposite sides, and I may totally disagree with both of them or one of them, I pray that they are blessed and that they know you are a God of love and goodness. Get on your knees for them, even if you hate them. And I want you to do this every day this week. And if you've got 30 people on your list of people that you hate, well, then you're going to be on your knees a while. But it's something we need to do because if we adjust the way we love our enemies, guess what will then happen to how easy it will become to love those that are easy to love? It'll just pour out. It'll overflow. As our hearts change and we begin to model this, we will be modeling something that's not found in this world. And perhaps then, perhaps then, the non-believing world might actually want what we proclaim we have, but often fail to show. If we can learn to love our enemies, I believe it will increase our love for one another and for our neighbors who we have nothing in common with. Dear church, in this season of chaos, the way we go about loving one another and loving our neighbors outside of this church may have to adjust for a time being. It may include things like masks and social distancing and whatever else. But the heart of love that we should be expressing to one another should never change. Jesus made it so simple for us, and yet we're going to spend a lifetime trying to implement it in full. Love God, love one another. Amen? Amen. Amen.